0: I'm so glad that you've joined us today. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Jill Wecht, who is a professor of medicine and rehabilitation medicine at Icon School of Medicine, New York, and a VA rehabilitation research and development research health science specialist. Dr. Wecht is, is, Wecht is affiliated with the uh, Spinal Cord Damage Research Center, which is also home to the VA Center of Excellence on the Medical Consequences of Spinal Cord Injury, and is located at the James J. Peters VA in the Bronx. Dr. Wright leads a research program and seeks to improve our understanding of the cardiovascular effects of the disruption of the autonomic nervous system that happens on the following spinal cord injury. And she has collaborated extensively with researchers at Tesla Institute for Rehabilitation and at Tesla Foundation. And we're so pleased to welcome Dr. Wright here to discuss her important work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello. Good afternoon. So I think that sums up who I am. I will be talking about the autonomic effects of injury, of spinal cord injury. I know most of you are probably very well aware of the motor and sensory impact of injury on individuals' daily living and, and rehabilitation efforts, but we are, more, we are focusing in my program on the autonomic impact of injury. So um, this was coined in um, 1898. As we approach the centennial, can you hear me if I look this way? Can everyone hear me at this volume? Okay. So, as we approach the centennial of the term autonomic nervous system, which was coined in 1898, we should ask whether autonomic disorders are being sufficiently considered, suitably investigated, and appropriately managed in clinical practice. And this was this was written by Chris Matthias in the New England Journal of Medicine in 19. um, 97, a full 20 years ago, and we can still ask ourselves this question. It has relevance, but are we really appreciating what that relevance is? So we believe that hemodynamic stability or instability in people with spinal cord injury stems from uh, segmental differences in autonomic nervous system control of both cardiovascular and vascular fun- function. And what we mean by segmental differences, is you're all aware of the level of lesion. So we have our tetraplegic group and for autonomic nervous system control of the cardiovascular system, we t- consider someone tetraplegic if they're C1 to T1. Uh, high thoracic, high paraplegic T2 to T5. Low paraplegic T6 and below. And this is important because of the anatomical origins of the two branches of the autonomic nervous system. We have the cholinergic branch, which is the parasympathetic branch which leaves the basal ganglia above the cervical spine. So anatomically, this this branch of the autonomic nervous system should not be impacted by spinal cord injury of any level. And the parasympathetic nervous system innervates the upper extremity organ systems, including the heart, as well as the gastrointestinal tract and the bladder and bowel. However, adrenergic or sympathetic nerve fibers originate from the upper thoracic cord from T2 to T5 and that does vary in individual to individual. But adrenergic contribution to cardiovascular control is innervation of the heart the upper extremity vasculature, the lower extremity vasculature, and the splantnik bed vasculature. And that's important because when we regulate blood pressure, we need to be able to control the the tone of the vasculature to maintain and, and adapt blood pressure as provocations are changing, such as an upright position or a large meal and et cetera. So the adrenergic or sympathetic nervous system is impacted by differentially, depending on the level of the spinal cord injury. So how that manifests most obviously to us is in blood pressure dysregulation and there are three categories that we would consider to be dysregulation of blood pressure and the first is autonomic dysreflexia which I'm sure you're all familiar with. The definition does vary, however, most people um, suggest that a 20 millimeter or a mercury rise in systolic blood pressure above baseline would, be con- would constitute autonomic dysreflexia and that would stem from a, a, a below lesion um, noxious or non-noxious stimuli, a full bladder, a full bowel, um, sitting in one position for too long. Then we have chronic hypotension, and in 1978, the World Health Organization defined hypotension as a systolic blood pressure less than 110 for women and less than 100 for men, and that's regardless of diastolic blood pressure. However, that that definition is really not used very much in current literature or in clinical practice. And then finally, we have orthostatic hypotension which is uh, defined by the American Autonomic Society and the Academy of Neurology as a fall in systolic blood pressure of greater than or equal to 20 and or a fall in diastolic blood pressure of greater than or equal to 10 millimeters of mercury when you move from a supine to an upright either seated or standing position. However, what we have to keep in mind is that most of these definitions do take into account a symptomatic response. So the the patient tells you they feel something ill. With with autonomic dysreflexia, they may feel paler, they may feel goosebumps, they may have a headache or a, a pounding in the head. With orthostatic hypotension, they may be dizzy or lightheaded. However, many individuals with spinal cord injury don't report symptoms associated with these blood pressure abnormalities, and therefore most are not treated. So in 2013, we sought to to, uh, do a retrospective chart review to determine what the diagnosis rates and the treatment rates for these disorders were in veterans with, with spinal cord injury. So we looked in the medical record back for a fi- over a five year span of time and we looked at diagnosis or ICD-9 codes for various blood pressure abnormalities. And if an individual, a veteran with spinal cord injury carried the diagnosis one time over that five year period, they were classified as having the disorder at least at least one time. So um, on, the, on the right side, on the left side here, we have our disorders of high blood pressure that is uh, autonomic dysreflexia and hypertension. And we see the axis goes from zero to 80% prevalence in the diagnosis of these conditions. And what we can see is that the diagnosis of autonomic dysreflexia is relatively low, regardless of the level of spinal cord injury. However, the, the diagnosis of hypertension is 40% or more, again, regardless of the diagnosis, uh, level of spinal cord injury. So these veterans are being diagnosed pretty well with, with high blood pressure or hypertension. If we move over to the right side of the graph, we see our disorders of low blood pressure, that is orthostatic hypotension and hypotension. And the first thing I'd like to draw your attention to is the y-axis, which goes from zero to one and a half percent, compared to the hypertension, which goes from zero to 80. So clearly, we have a, a, people are not being diagnosed with low blood pressure or conditions of low blood pressure. And and that's regardless of the level of spinal cord injury, although we do have more individuals with high cord lesion or tetraplegia being diagnosed with orthostatic hypotension, that's less than 1.5% of these veterans, so a very small percentage. So now we're looking at the actual medical record and the data entered into the chart reflective of these blood pressure abnormalities. So on the top we have um, hypotension and hypertension, so a systolic blood pressure entered into the medical record of less than 110, again reflecting low blood pressure, and greater than 140 reflecting hypertension or high blood pressure. And what we see is that the, the values entered into the medical record for low blood pressure are appropriately higher in the in individuals with high cord lesion because of the adrenergic compromise. And that descends as we descend the cord. The diagnosis uh, or the values entered into the medical record re- reflecting hypertension are, are about 15 percent in our individuals with cervical lesion and about 20, 22 percent in those with lower cord lesion, potentially reflecting the fact that they're being treated for the condition and therefore are appropriately, have appropriate lower blood pressures. And On the bottom here we have treatment for um, hypotension, that is anti-hypotensive agents and anti-hypertensive agents. And we have both low and, blo- and high blood pressure uh, medicines on this chart and we can see that the treatment for high blood pressure is about 50% of the population regardless of level of lesion. The treatment of hypotension or low blood pressure is on this chart. Again, you can't see it because it's being dwarfed by the treatment for hypertension. So that's over here. If we blow up the y-axis, we see we go from 0 to 1%. And regardless of level of lesion, less than 1% of these veterans are being treated for low blood pressure. So they're not being diagnosed and they're not being treated. So we ask, so what? Does it matter? Because like I said before, they're not really symptomatic. So we're asking that question, and we want to know, well, is there a reason that we need to be looking at low blood pressure and potentially, well, what cordonomatous reflexia, low blood pressure, and treating it? So we want to know, well, are there adverse effects on the cerebral circulation? So two reports in uh, 2012 and 2014 uh, strongly suggest that there's an increased stroke risk in individuals with uh, spinal cord injury compared to the general population. And both of these um, investigative groups suggest that it's uh, it potentially an inability to buffer blood pressure in the cerebral circulation. So blood pressure is swinging high for autonomous reflexia and low for hy- orthostatic hypotension and generally they're, they're hypotensive. And those wide swings in blood, blood pressure are, are, um, are having effects on the cerebral cir- circulation. Potentially leading to increased stroke risk and recent evidence suggests impaired cerebrovascular buffering of blood pressure so this paper which just came out this year supports these findings and what these investigators have done is they've looked at blood pressure and cerebral blood flow during um, uh, clinical procedures that provoke autonomous reflexia, so during urodynamics and during um, sp- sperm retrieval for reproduction And what they've shown here is that the change, sorry, sorry, they've shown the change in mean arterial pressure correlates very well with the change in uh, mean mean uh, blood flow to the mid cerebral artery, suggesting that again they're they're unable to buffer these changes, and it's it's having consequences in the acute setting on the cerebral circulation. So they also looked at this phenomenon in an animal model of autonomic dysreflexia. They used a rat model of T3 lesion, and they had chronic autonomic dysreflexia due to colorectal distension. They put a balloon in the rectum and they inflated it six times a day for 10 minutes each, five days a week for four weeks. And then they sacrificed the animals and they looked at the circulation, the cerebral circulation, and they saw that the middle cerebral artery had stiffened, had reduced distensibility, increased collagen expression, and reduced sympathetic nerve fiber density. So it suggests that from these blood pressure swings the in the rat model anyway there is uh, an inability to buffer the blood pressure and it has consequences on the morphology and the physiology of the cerebral circulation so we looked at 24 hour blood pressure to to see if what what the blood pressure looked like in our individual spinal cord injury categorically defined as i previously demonstrated as those with Uh, cervical lesions, those with high thoracic and low thoracic lesion. And this is 24-hour and we had controls. They were in a wheelchair for the 24-hour period so we didn't have the effects of orthostasis um, confounding the results. And what we found is that our individuals with tetraplegia, no surprise, had chronically low blood pressure as compared to the other three groups. So then we looked at, well does that have an impact on their cerebral circulation? And so on the left here, we have um, our blood pressures. And these are, these are able-bodied controls who are relatively hypotensive. So they'd met the World Health Organization of, of low blood pressure, yet their blood pressures were still significantly higher than our spinal cord. So they're all hypotensive, but not quite as hypotensive as the individual's spinal cord injury. But if we look at cerebral blood flow velocity, systolic, diastolic, and mean flow velocity in the middle cerebral artery, all these individuals with chronic hypotension a chronic SCI with hypotension had significantly lower cerebral blood flow velocities than the controls. So again, it suggests the inability to regulate blood flow to the brain that may be related to their inability to control blood pressure. So work by another group looking at similar phenomena reported that cerebral blood flow was comparable in individuals with spinal cord injury who were hypotensive as compared to a normal, ten, norm, normotensive able-bodied control. However, what's important here is that 8 of the 10 subjects were acutely injured between 5 and 11 weeks. So what this suggests is that there may be a window of opportunity, that in the newly injured individual, they're able to maintain flow even though they have low blood pressure, but as they become more chronic, perhaps that 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 whole uh, reciprocity breaks down. So our preliminary evidence in uh, spinal cord injury, which we're, we're collecting right now, suggests a uh, similar phenomenon. So now we're looking at, um, we have on the left here, we have our blood pressure, systolic, mean, and diastolic. But now we've broken the individuals with spinal cord injury up into those that are hypotensive and those that are normotensive. So the hypotensive group have low blood pressure compared to both the controls and the individuals with SCI who are normotens- normotensive. And what we see is that flow velocities are significantly reduced in individuals with spinal cord injury with low blood pressure. So again, suggesting that if they can maintain blood pressure, perhaps they can maintain flow velocities better and have a better cerebral circulation, cerebral perfusion. So another group looked at orthostatic hypotension, so changes in blood pressure when they move from a supine to a seated upright position and how that impacts cerebral circulation. So the first thing they did is they looked at individuals with spinal cord injury categorized as those with cervical versus thoracic lesion, and they suggest that there are no differences in cerebral blood flow as you move from the supine to the seated position. However, when these individuals with spinal cord injury were categorized by the level of autonomic completeness of injury, now this is up for discussion, we're not sure how to define that, but these guys defined autonomic completeness of lesion as a plasma norepinephrine level of less than 0.56 nanomoles per, per, per liter. So now if we look at these individuals categorized differentially, these are all the same subjects. We have our controls in black, our more complete lesions in gray, and our less complete lesions in white. And in all four, it's the same subjects categorized differently. So when we categorize by autonomic completeness of injury, we see that the fall in cerebral blood flow when they move from the supine to the upright position is significant in those with the complete autonomic lesion. However, these same individuals categorized as uh, above and below T5, no differences, as cervical versus thoracic, no difference, and as Asia A versus B, C, and D, no difference, suggesting that it's an autonomically supported uh, relationship between the systemic and the cerebral circulation that maintains reciprocity and potentially protects against hypoperfusion of the brain. So, in 2009, we th- we looked at something similar. Uh, at that point, there was an autoregulatory range. It's no longer in favor, but at this point in time, people believe that we could maintain blood flow to the brain uh, b- within a range of 60 to 100 millimeters of mercury mean arterial pressure. So we looked at that. We looked at individual uh, controls, seven controls, and seven individuals with tetraplegia. We were in the supine position, and then we moved to a 45-degree head-up position. And we looked at the controls to see how blood pressure shifted, and we saw that they all maintained blood flow within this auto-regulatory range. However, s- uh, five, of, six of the, five of the seven uh, had a fall in, in, in mean arterial pressure. Um, that, that was either to the, lo- the level of the lower level of order auto- regulation or below in our individuals with tetraplegia. So then we looked at simultaneous cerebral blood flow, and we don't have a, a cerebral blood flow range that would be considered normal. So we define normal as what the controls did. So the range of the normal in the in the controls, and we see that there was a wide range. We had one individual who had a steep fall in cerebral blood flow, but the other controls maintained cerebral blood pro- blood flow pretty well. However, the, the, the changes in cerebral blood flow in our individuals with tetraplegia was more, were, were more steep. And in fact, six of the seven individuals with tetraplegia had a fall of 25% of cerebral blood flow when they moved from the supine to the head up tilt position. Only one of the controls did, and that control was symptomatic. And our individuals with tetraplegia, two of the six were symptomatic, but the other four were not. Again, getting to the point of that um, individuals with tetraplegia tetraplegia in particular, have um, asymptomatic hypotension and orthostatic hypotension, but they may have reductions in cerebral blood flow, reductions in cerebral perfusion pressure that are unappreciated. So, um, as I said, most individuals are not symptomatic, and therefore they're not treated or even diagnosed, as I previously mentioned. So we sought to determine... Does, does low perfusion pressure, does low, low cerebral blood flow have an impact on cognitive function? And in 2010, we reported that in spinal cord injured individuals that have low blood pressure, they, they perform significantly more poorly than a normotensive SCI cohort. So these are all SCI individuals on tasks of memory and on attention processing. And just briefly, if we want to look at the demographics, we had 11 individuals with spinal cord injury that were hypotensive. We had nine that were normotensive. Demographics, uh, the blood pressures were all lower in the hypotensive as per the definition of the groups. Level of lesion ranged from cervical through lower thoracic, although no low low thoracic here. Mostly tetraplegia, mostly Asia A. Um, Level of education was comparable. Premorbid IQ was comparable. And history of TBI was also comparable. Cognitive dysfunction in the spinal cord injury population is prevalent, people believe it's because they probably hit their head when they, have a, when, they, when they broke their spine, which makes sense, and we believe that TBI may be playing a role, however, low blood pressure or high blood pressure or the inability to buffer blood pressure may also be playing a role, and that's important because we can treat blood pressure. It's hard to know how to treat a traumatic brain injury, particularly if it's not even diagnosed. So if we can, we can hone in on a, on, a, on a mechanism of action and really treat that, we can improve some of these outcomes in people with spinal cord injury. So importantly, we also looked at whether or not these cognitive scores related to blood pressure. So we have 24-hour blood pressure on the x-axis. We have average memory T-score on the y. And we see that there is a relationship between blood pressure and scores on this memory task. And if we look more closely, we see that really that relationship is being driven by people with low blood pressure. So if people are, if these individuals have blood pressure that's above the hypotensive range, there really is no relationship. But as they get down here, we see that there is a relationship. So this is ongoing work collected with the Kessler Foundation, Dr. Chevroletti and Dr. Wiley. So we're following up some of these studies, and this is the Symbol Digit Modalities Test, which is an assessment of information processing, sustained attention, and visual working memory. And we we show that individuals with tetraplegia have significantly lower raw scores on the SDMT as compared to both the paraplegia group and the non-SCI controls. And that blood pressure is indeed significantly lower in our individuals with tetraplegia as compared to the other two groups. So if we look at the relationship between the change in blood pressure from seated rest to during the SDMT and change in cerebral blood flow, we see that there is a significant relationship in our individuals with tetraplegia. However, no relationship in our controls or individuals with paraplegia. And if we look at the relationship between change in blood pressure and change in cerebral blood flow to SDMT scores, we see that change in blood pressure accounts for nearly 20% of the variance in scores on the SDMT. And although not significant, it's 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 marginally significant, there is a ten a change in cerebral blood flow that accounts for about 10% of the variance in scores on the SDMT. So again, getting at the point that if we can if we can change blood pressure, if we can increase blood pressure and improve blood flow, maybe we can improve cognitive function. So this group looked at The impact of treating low blood pressure, increasing blood pressure with midodrine hydrochloride, the most commonly prescribed agent for low blood pressure in this population, and looked at the effects on cerebral blood flow and on verbal fluency scores. And a 20 millimeter mercury increase in cerebral blood flow was in, in blood pressure was associated with a rise in cerebral blood flow and an improvement in verbal fluency scores. And those with the largest increases in blood pressure following midadrin had the greatest improvements in cognitive function, suggesting an association. Small numbers, but it is suggestive of a, a potential treatment target for cognitive dysfunction in this population. The authors suggest, and I think this is important, that we, a lot of attention is paid to the impact of high blood pressure on cognitive function, in not the spinal cord injury population but the general population, that, that the relationship may be a U inverted U-shape, and that individuals with very high blood pressure and with very low blood pressure may have cognitive dysfunction due to um, microvascular damages and, the, and um, impaired cerebral metabolic status and cerebrovascular responsiveness to cognitive function, cognitive testing. If you can't maintain systemic pressure and you can't maintain flow during a cognitive task, that's like a muscle not getting enough blood when it's trying to, you know, exert itself, right? So you're not able to to mentate or you're, or perform a cognitive task as well. So we're looking at treatments for low blood pressure. We've got, we've done extensive work with midodrine, and I'll show you some of those data. But we're also looking at other agents with different mechanism of action. So midodrine is an alpha agonist that, that, that binds to the alpha receptor on the vascular walls and causes temporal vasoconstriction and raises blood pressure. Pyridostigmine bromide is acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, which stops the breakdown of acetylcholine in the presynapse of, of the adrenergic or the sympathetic nervous system. So more acetylcholine in the presynapse binds to the postsynaptic cleft, allowing for more release of norepinephrine at the postsynapse and raising blood pressure. Mirabegoron is a beta-3 that basal constricts the, the um, renal circulation to, to increase systemic blood pressure. Androxidopa is a norepinephrine precursor that may, um, may increase blood pressure through a more normal mechanism by converting, be, being converted to norepinephrine in the, cerebr- in the circulation, being stored in non-neuronal tissue, and then released appropriately when blood pressure is low. So these are data that we're cu- currently collecting with Mitadrin, and I'll orient you. On, our, on the left here, we have this is pre-placebo, and this is post-placebo. This is pre-Mitadrin, and this is post-Mitadrin. And you can see that on average, Mitadrin, 10 milligrams, increased sy- uh, systolic blood pressure significantly compared to both the pre-Mitadrin and the pre-placebo condition. But there were no differences between the post-placebo and, and the post-Mitadrin. And if we look more closely, we want people to be normotensive. We don't want to raise their blood pressure above what we would consider to be a normal or healthy blood pressure. So what we find is that um, 40% of the population actually remains hypotensive, below that World Health Organization of 110, 40% become normotensive, and 20% have hypertensive responses to minadrin. And this is a single dose collected in a placebo-controlled, randomized, double-blinded trial. So if we break down those groups and look at the demographics, who responds with a hypertensive response, who is normotensive and who's hypotensive, they're broken up here. And what, the, what these data suggest is that individuals with a hypotensive response really start much lower with the sy- systolic blood pressure than those with a normal blood pressure response and those with a hypertensive response. And also the change in blood pressure is limited versus these two. The hypertensive has, have a robust probably ex- exaggerated rise in blood pressure following midodrine. If you look at the age, those with the hypertensive response are significantly older than those with a hypotensive response. And they're also injured for longer. So it suggests that as, if you have a patient in front of you with low blood pressure and they're older and they're injured longer, you wanna start with a lower dose of midodrine. If they're younger and more newly injured, you wanna maybe start with a 10 and if you don't get the response you need, you wanna to go to a higher dose so we want to know okay so that's good we can raise blood pressure and we have some parameters with who we should treat with what dose but what's happening to the cerebral circulation so this is the relationship between the change in blood pressure uh, following midadrin in percentage and the change in mean flow velocity in the middle cerebral artery so we have our three groups our hypotensive responders our hypertensive responders and our normal normotensive responders and what we see is that In neither, the hypotensive or the hypertensive response, is there a relationship between the change in blood pressure and the change in flow velocity. However, in those with a normotensive response, they're the green squares here, we can see that there is a relationship between blood pressure changes and cerebral blood flow changes. And in fact, blood pressure accounts for 25, almost 26% of the variance of change in cerebral blood flow if we're able to get them into the normotensive range. Now I do want to point out, and this is a small number, so we're not going to go into great detail here, but we do have different groups in the normotensive group, right? So we have a group here that they have changes in blood pressure, but they're not reflected in change in the cerebral blood flow. And we have a group here where their blood pressure changes are reflected in the cerebral circulation. So the question is who's healthier, right? So these guys may be buffering, right? So the cerebral vasculature may be buffering the blood pressure rise. And is that healthy? Or is it healthier to have this this uh, this linear rise in blood pressure, and that's what we're studying now. We don't know; these numbers are small, and we are like data collection is ongoing. So we'll we'll, we'll figure that out and figure out what the consequences are to uh, cognitive function. I just want to point out that diastolic pressure is not being affected by midodrine significantly. So again, we have our pre-placebo, post-placebo, pre-midodrine, and post-midodrine. There's a slight rise in diastolic pressure but it's not statistically significant compared to the other three conditions following Midodrine. And if we look, um, if we consider, and we do consider, diastolic hypotension to be a blood pressure less than 70, and I'll tell you why in a minute, uh, 82% of all observations were uh, were uh, a blood, a diastolic blood pressure less than 70 millimeters of mercury. And that's important because this paper was published in 2013, suggesting that low diastolic blood pressure has uh, associations with increased risk for all-cause all mortality. Now this was done in VA patients, these are not spinal cord injured patients, we do not know if this relationship will hold up in the spinal cord population, but what it shows is that mortality for all-cause, and they controlled for everything, they controlled for lifestyle and body composition and smoking habits. and. And, and, uh, and comorbid conditions. What they show is that at a, at a diastolic pressure less than 70, there is a significant rise in risk for all-cause mortality, controlling for age and, again, gender and all influences. So we don't know if this data holds up in the spinal cord population, but by and large, individuals with spinal cord injury are have diastolic hypotension. And midagrin doesn't seem to affect diastolic pressure. So we want to know, are there other, mecha- other medicines with uh, different mechanisms of action that may be a better choice for individuals who maybe have a hypertensive response or don't respond to midodrine? So we looked at pyridostigmine in a dose response of 30, 60, 90, and 120, and mirabegaron, 25, 50, 75, and 100. And right now, we do not have a dose effect. So uh, we have small numbers in our higher doses because we started out with these lower doses and realized we weren't having a blood pressure effect. So we included higher doses in both these drugs, but we're not seeing an, a, a linear rise as we increase the dose. Maybe that we're still too low on the dose. Maybe that these, me- these mechanisms of action are not, um, are not effective in the population. The, the study is ongoing. And then this is droxydopa. This has a lot of promise. Droxydopa was approved for treatment of symptomatic orthostatic hypotension in the neurogenic population. Uh, individuals with uh, multiple system atrophy, Parkinson's disease, uh, pure autonomic failure, not for the spinal cord population is what I mean. But it was approved by the FDA in 2014, so we can use it, we can get it for our individuals with spinal cord injury. So these are our preliminary data. Um, Pre-drug, we have four conditions. Placebo, 100 milligram, 200 milligram, 400 milligram. This was given open label. So this is pre-drug in the seated position we see all the individuals on average were hypotensive we put them into the supine position because we want to make sure we don't raise supine blood pressure into a dangerous zone we see blood pressure rises without the drug uh, when, when they're moved from the seat, from the seated to the supine position then we give drug and we sit them up and what happens with placebo is we have orthostatic hypotension and that orthostatic hypotension that fall with placebo is is uh limited and reversed with with the dose of droxydopa so that means we can give it to people while they're in bed and they can sit up and and droxydopa may prevent the fall when they sit up but not cause hypertension when they're in a supine position and as we see here uh, about one hour the doses of of uh, droxydopa have maintained an elevated blood pressure compared to placebo But that effect wanes in the 100 and 200 milligram dose and is sustained up to about 3 hours with the 400 milligram dose. So, it might be the 400 milligram dose of droxydopa is effective for treatment if it's dosed maybe BID or TID, depending on how often they are, how long they are up in the chair daily. And it wouldn't exacerbate, as far as we can see in these preliminary data, any supine hypertension. So I just want to bring the four um, drugs that we're currently testing to uh, one slide and show you that this is Mitadrin. These are the normotensive responders, the hypotensive responders, and the hypertensive responders in all four graphs. And you can see that Mitadrin has our uh, 40% normotensive, 40% hypotensive, and 20% hypertensive. Very limited hypertensive responses to any of these three drugs, which is important. Again, the doses might not be high enough, but we're not seeing hypertension. We're also not seeing normal tension very much, right? So very small or limited observation of normal blood pressure suggesting we might need higher doses. So in summary, blood pressure dysregulation is underappreciated, we believe, in the spinal cord population. and It might be related to autonomic impairment. Um, and it may have uh, an unappreciated adverse effect on the cerebral circulation, cerebral blood flow, and cognitive function. We are currently under investigating several treatment options for blood pressure dysregulation in the spinal cord population. And our goal is to increase the armamentarium of effective pharmacological treatment options for blood pressure, hypotension, and orthostatic hypotension for use in spinal cord injured population. So to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And while not all problems can be solved by addressing Autonomic impairment and blood pressure dysregulation in people with spinal cord injury. We believe that it is a, a point of observation which we can impre- increase our understanding of, which would potentially improve um, adverse impacts on vital organ systems, perfusion, and function, and may have a beneficial effects on vitality and quality of life. So, these, in appreciation, my the study participants, as always, my study coordinators. Alex Lombard is in the audience, the other three are not here, and then my collaborators and support from the VA, the Nielsen Foundation, and the New Jersey Commission. Thank you. For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.